Well, we are continuing this series, Eyewitness News, this morning. The title is uh, Who's the Boss? Uh, you'll notice, if you're going to follow along in the bulletin, that the main points, just the main points are highlighted in the bulletin. There are just a few main points and about 1,400 sub-points. And I'm kidding, but we decided not to put them all down for you. So I hope you'll be able to, to follow along. Let me ask you a question. How many uh, watched and enjoyed the Olympics that we had in London? Uh, I'm glad and I hope you really enjoyed that. I was, I was over there. I was preaching and teaching in the UK. Uh, I didn't get to go to any event for two reasons. Number one, I was too busy. And secondly, uh, the tickets were about a thousand bucks a time. And so I didn't get to go. But it was amazing. It was like a national party broke out in Britain. It was truly wonderful. For once, uh, we Brits, we put aside our two most beloved national hobbies, which are negativity <laughs> and cynicism. If negativity and cynicism were Olympic events, we'd get the gold every time. But just for once, we put all of that aside and we celebrated. It was wonderful and the, the Paralympics is happening right now. Truly incredible stuff. But because I was over there, that meant that you'll probably, you might have noticed that I missed preaching my favorite weekend of the year here at Timberlines. Anyone know what that weekend is? It's, it's the weekend I look forward to for the whole year. The 4th of July. It's that weekend when many of you come to me and smile and say kind things like, the British are coming, the British are coming. <laughs> I always really enjoy it. I want you to imagine three things. I want us to engage our imaginations as we come to God's Word today. I want you to imagine, it's just pretend, but imagine that the British came and they won the Revolutionary War back in 1783. And now they are harshly ruling over the USA. Thousands of Americans have been executed. Cities have been burned to the ground. Many are in slavery. Imagine it. I want you to imagine that you're a Jewish American living under this kind of tyranny. And thirdly, I want you to imagine that there's a popular belief that a Messiah figure will come and, and help you and rescue uh, and deliver you from the tyranny of the evil Brits. That's exactly how it was in Jesus' day. Substitute Brits for Romans. Israel was living under harsh Roman occupation, a, a crushing regime of taxation. A revolt had happened literally four miles from where Jesus was born, two years before he was born. A revolt happened in a city called Sepphoris, and the Roman army moved in. They crucified 2,000 Jews outside the city, burned the city to the ground, took every, every citizen of that city into slavery. It was a difficult, terrible time. But this was also a time when there was a belief, a conviction, that a Messiah figure was coming. Pastor Rob talked about that in his message last weekend. A superhuman figure who would overthrow the Romans, gather God's people from around the earth, make Jerusalem the center of the world. And as Rob said, he would rebuild the temple he would overthrow Israel's enemies, and he would usher in justice. And now in Mark's gospel, a critical moment, a junction moment has occurred because Peter finally has got it. Jesus says, who do you say 
that I am. It's a cataclysmic, cosmic moment as Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah. This is amazing news. Also politically loaded news as well because messiahs, messiah figures got executed. And Jesus quickly says, don't tell anybody about this. But imagine this. You're living under oppression. Yes, Messiah is here. And then, as we're going to see this week, crushing disappointment. Because Jesus, immediately after Peter has this revelation, quickly moves to tell Peter and his friends that he's not going to be the Messiah that they were expecting. He is the Messiah, but a very different Messiah He is not going to overthrow the Romans. He's doing something far bigger. And here, at this point in Mark, Jesus offers the first of three very clear explanations. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I will rise again from the dead. Peter, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be the political Messiah you're looking for. I'm going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and Peter doesn't like it. And as we'll see, he tries to manage Jesus. It it seems to me, I've been so challenged by studying this passage through this last week, it seems to me that sometimes that's what I want to do. I want to manage him. I don't want to out outwardly or overtly rebel against him. I don't want to, I don't want to shake a fist in his face. I just want to say, look, look, Jesus, let's Let's talk about this, can we? There's a better way. Do I really have to to do this your way? And so what we're going to do, we're going to investigate this and ask the question, who really is the boss? The first thing, the first uh, statement in your bulletin heading is when resistance to Jesus is likely. When is it it likely that we're going to resist Jesus? Look at Mark 8.31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Uh, This this, uh, statement, Jesus was taken aside by Peter. Um, The verb literally means to take by the hand and then to face someone. We sometimes use the phrase, I got into his face. That's what Peter did. And this was not a casual, gentle conversation. The word rebuke here is the same word that is used in Mark's gospel for rebuking demons. Look, Jesus, there's something wrong with this. this. This can't happen to you. And I think we can try that one too. When is it likely to happen? Well, sometimes it happens when we're feeling confident. When is resistance to Jesus likely? When we're feeling confident. Peter was was feeling pretty good. He just had the revelation about who Jesus was. That was cool. And in other Gospels, not in Mark, probably because of Peter's humility, but in other Gospels, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Peter, Heaven's revealed this to you. Peter's on a roll. He's he's had the revelation. So now, because he's been incredibly right, he thinks he's going to be incredibly right again. 
Isn't it true that when we're used to being right, we can think that we're always right? We get overconfident. Well, my way must be the right way. And then sometimes we do this, we argue with Jesus, when our minds are stretched. When our minds are stretched with a new concept or challenge. The expression is used here, Jesus began to teach. This was new. I think we sometimes get the idea that right at the beginning of the disciples' journey with Jesus, he said, now let me explain to you, this is the way it's all going to unfold. It was not that way. He had waited until this moment to set out an explanation. And I think sometimes we struggle when we hear, we read something in Scripture that confronts our understanding of what God is like when our minds are stretched. Or when we feel that Christianity is about negotiation. That's another, another dangerous time, when we feel like it's okay for us to negotiate with Jesus. It's interesting that Jesus said, get behind me. Now, as we'll see in a few moments, he was primarily talking to Satan, who was inspiring Peter at this moment. But it is interesting that the original call to Peter was, follow me. And now Peter perhaps is being told by Jesus, would you get back in place? Would you resume the role that you were called to, which is as a follower of me? And, and then sometimes we argue with God when others encourage us to make bad choices, when others encourage us to make bad choices. When I was back in London, um, we had some American friends over, and they wanted to go see Harrods. Anyone know what Harrods is? Raise your hand if you're familiar with that. Harrods is a, is a, a huge store in a very expensive part of London where rich people go to pay reassuringly inflated prices, and uh, it's, a, it's a fabulous store. Uh, I love to go and look, but I don't normally buy, and, and our friends and Kay were in Harrods, and I was just following them in. When I saw a group of about 10 or 12 people, TV cameras, a couple of photographers, and two Bentleys, Bentley limousines, beautiful brand new cars, and I peered around the corner, and it was Kate Middleton. Everyone familiar with who Kate Middleton <laughs> is? She married one of our guys. The wedding was a pretty big deal. And I, I went up to the, the edge of the crowd, and I said, who is it? And they said, it's Kate Middleton. Kate Middleton. And I'm like, thank you, God. Yes. I've got my American friends over, and they're going to get to see Kate Middleton. So I, I ran into Harrods, and I said, honey, put down that $500 jar of jam and get out here, and Kate Middleton's outside. So exciting. And we went outside, and there she was, beautiful blue dress, and I was about far away from here, just, just it's Kate. And the camp TV cameras are rolling, and my friend got right next to her, and he held up his iPhone and smiled, you know. <laughs> and Kay nudged me, and she said, it's not Kate. I said, what do you mean, honey? I said, TV cameras, Bentleys, crowd. It's Kate. She said, it's not Kate. It's a double. It's a, it's a spoof. It's not Kate. I was gutted. I said, no, it's Kate. It has to be Kate. I want to tell Timberline I saw Kate. She jumped into the Bentley, security drove off with a TV camera comes up to my friend, Australian TV, and the guy, the, the interviewer says, what did it feel like to talk to Kate Middleton? And my friend said, I don't think I did. I don't think it was her. 
And the guy said, you're right, we're just driving around London having fun. And I was gutted. In fact, I still think it was her, quite frankly. I just... <laughs> Everybody said it's Kate, and because they said it, I wanted to believe it. Because everyone says it doesn't make it right. The crowd can be wrong, and when Jesus rebuked Peter, it's very clear that he looked around at his disciples because Peter was just the spokesperson. Just because everyone says it doesn't make it right. And then sometimes we argue with God because we're disappointed with him. When we're disappointed with God, that's a time when we can resist Jesus. I think sometimes we are slow to admit that we're disappointed. Our prayers didn't get answered the way we wanted. It's not turned out. And I can almost hear someone say, how dare you suggest we could ever be disappointed with God? Please read the Psalms. Why? Where are you? How long? Read Jeremiah. Cries out to God. We can come to God. I believe that part of our worship can be the honest expression of our disappointment and our struggles as we come as we are. Have we resisted him, insisting that we're right, disappointed with him? And then secondly, there's a way to respond to this temptation of trying to manage Jesus. There's a way to respond uh, Mark 8:33 Jesus says get behind me Satan you do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns some Christians go overboard on this issue of spiritual warfare everything's the devil's fault you ever met Christians like that they run out of gas and they say Satan is attacking me what is the Lord saying to me as I broke down on the freeway this week he is saying to thee filleth thine tank but while we can overstate the issue of spiritual warfare, we can understate it too. And that we forget that we're in a battle for hearts and minds. We forget. And Jesus is very clear. He's very clear. If you're tempted to manage him, be absolutely clear. Jesus says, get behind me. Well, that was kind of rude, you might think. Can Jesus offend us? Can we hear preaching risk offending you and myself because I'm sitting under the preaching too or do we only like preaching that just makes us feel kind of warm and, and good can Jesus offend us will we give him that permission and then Jesus recognizes the source of what's going on here you see the issue of avoiding the cross had already been sorted out in the wilderness of temptation Satan had already tried that trick but now it's as if Satan is hoping that Jesus has forgotten that battle and now is presenting another suggestion that he avoid the cross, the, the cross on its challenges and pain and suffering. And Jesus recognizes the source and he calls Peter to reaffirm his priorities. When you're tempted to struggle and manage Jesus, reaffirm what your priorities are. You're not just living for your concerns. You're not just living for your appetites. We are living for the concerns of God. But we do need to be clear. And I want you to know that at the end of this service, we're going to pray, and, and some of us, I'm praying that we'll get clarity and break out of cruise control and say, okay, I get it. I remember. I realize. Let's respond well. Thirdly, we're called to die daily. We're called to die daily daily 
Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. When I was in high school back in 1837, I was generally a good boy. Thanks for believing. But there was one day when I was a very naughty boy. I was in math, in the math class, and I didn't like math. If you're a math teacher, uh, God bless you, and that's wonderful. But I just didn't really get it, and so I didn't like it. I was bewildered. And uh, I was bored, and Philip Horn was sitting in front of me, and he was so asleep, I actually thought he might be dead. <laughs> and I decided to conduct a little experiment. Uh, they gave us, we were doing geometry, so we had those compass things, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Where there's a pointy part and a pencil part. <laughs> Don't know why they called it a compass, because it's not going to point you to north, but it's a compass. And I'm sitting there, and I thought, Philip Horn looks dead. I will see if he is dead. <laughs> and so I did verily stab him. And the location of the stabbing was, as Forrest Gump would call it, in the right buttock. And I stabbed him in the rear end. And I want you to know, he was very much alive. <laughs> I could have solved NASA a whole lot of money, because Philip Horn almost became the first man on the moon, baby. He was up in the air. He was alive. My problem is that too often I'm alive and not dead enough. You see, Jesus calls us to die, to deny ourselves, to say no to self. C.S. Lewis said, God has not come to torment our natural self, but to kill it. Christianity is about dying to your own rights, to your own self, and making him king. It means taking up the cross, taking up the cross. We often use this phrase, everyone has their cross to bear. That's not what Jesus meant. Taking up the cross wasn't about suffering, it was about death. Those who took up their cross were headed for the place of execution. It's a daily choice. I think this is really challenging because we're living in a culture of spirituality without cost. Have you noticed it's kind of cool to be spiritual, to be into something? Oh yeah, I'm really into this, but so often that spirituality carries no ethical demands. I can be into my spiritual thing, but it doesn't make any demand of me. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about knowing God and following him. Following means being with him. It means walking with him by faith each day. It's got a cost. Does our Christianity cost us? It means making sure that we're not ashamed of Christ. I don't think that that means tomorrow morning going into the workplace and saying, hello, ye sinners. Gather round and touch the hem of my garment, for I have been to Timberline. Doesn't mean that. It means being ready to give a reason for the hope that's within us. It means 
Actually, I, I don't have any problem about being ashamed of Jesus. I think Jesus is incredible. Sometimes, if I'm honest, I'm ashamed of us Christians. That's different. Are we ashamed of him? We're called to die daily. Fourthly, we're invited to live through his power. Live through his power. Mark 9.1. He said to them, truly, I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death before that they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. A lot of Christians get confused with that because they see the phrase kingdom of God coming in power and they think that means the second coming. Well, obviously, it doesn't mean that because these people died and Jesus had not come again. That's a, that's a, a wrong and restricted view of what the kingdom is. In Scripture, the coming of God's kingdom is connected with Christ's resurrection from the dead. The coming of God's kingdom is connected with the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And most likely, because it's the event that follows this, and we'll be looking at it next week, most likely Jesus was referring to the transfiguration, a real power encounter that Peter, James, and John had. But the main point is that Christianity is not about us toughing it out, gritting our teeth. I've got news if you've tried everything. I've got news if you've tried everything to change and you haven't been able to. There is power available. Christianity is not just a list of ethics. It's about empowering, transforming work of the Spirit of God. And even as Jesus makes these demands, he reminds them of the coming of the Spirit. Well, the last thing I want to talk about for a few minutes, fifthly, is don't forget what he has said plainly. Don't forget what he said plainly. Mark 8, 32, he spoke plainly about this. Let me explain. Previously, Jesus had made veiled reference to his crucifixion. John 2, 19 he says, if you, if you destroy this temple, it'll be raised up in three days. That's a veiled reference. But now, Mark wants us to know that Jesus laid it all out here, the word uh, plainly or openly, parousia. Unmistakably, he concealed nothing, and he kept doing it. He made it absolutely crystal clear. I'm going to die. And though they couldn't understand it, I'm going to be raised again. And it was the first, as I said earlier, of three times that he lays it all out in Mark. And yet, at the end of Mark, his disciples act as if they've forgotten it all. As if they didn't really hear it. They'd forgotten. Mark 14 and verse 50. And they all left him and fled. Isn't that true possibly of us? We gather together to remember. We break bread to remember. And then we get out there and in the heat of the moment, in the heat of temptation, we forget. I want to end this message by inviting you to sit back and relax. And I'd like to read you something that I wrote recently. It's for a new book that's coming out soon. And I think... Some of you will understand the connection with this idea of how we easily forget. And some of you will connect with this piece for entirely different reasons, but that's okay. So allow me to share it with you. It's called, You Aren't Always on My Mind. A 
According to God, it's not good for men and women to be alone. And that means that dementia is very bad indeed, because utter aloneness is what it spawns. Dementia is a bullying kidnapper, relentlessly shoving the sufferer into solitary confinement, where the most beloved friends and family morph into strangers. We know who we are because of who we know. The sight of my child reminds me that I'm a father. The voice of a confidant tells me that I'm a friend. But when every face is unfamiliar, then I no longer know who I am. This is a bewildering banishment to be a stranger to oneself. Dementia is heartless. It prizes apart bony fingers, refusing to allow its victims to clutch comforting memories of better times from bygone years or from just five minutes ago. It dumps those it strikes into a surreal, frightening world where even the comforting landscape of home turns into an unrecognizable wilderness. This is life in a strange land, an emotional exile with only thicker fog on the horizon. Fear rules there. A bump in the small hours or a lingering shadow induces terror because dementia's smart missile is paranoia. It makes the mind its stage, summoning awful images like a mad Hollywood director, one that makes Tarantino look tame. Dementia is a monstrous anaconda that silently stalks and then tries to crush all life in its coils. And now someone that I love is so smitten. She gave birth to me, but she can't always remember my name now. She asks the same question, not twice an hour, but sometimes three times a minute. Cruelly, there are times when she realizes exactly what is happening to her. The fog lifts briefly and her eyes clear. The snake relaxes its stranglehold just for a while. She apologizes tearfully because she knows that her treks to the wilderness are hard on us. She clings to me for dear life, trembling and bowed before this dementia thug. She thanks me for being kind. Tells me over and over again how much she loves me, desperate to say it before the mist descends on the moors of her mind once more. Her gratitude brings a strange pain because I know too well how I bristled with impatience and tut-tutted over endless repeats. But then the sun disappears again for God knows how long. Sometimes it feels like a horrible creature hijacks the dementia victim, disguising itself as them. But there is stealth and cunning too, for dementia entwines itself around the worst aspects of the personality. Irritating habits are exaggerated as this terrible disease spoils everything. It sneers at dignity and tramples on it. Grey-haired, Jesus-loving ladies, once sweet, holy Sunday school teachers, snarl and spew vile expletives. Dementia. I hate the word. I fear its strike. So I was shocked to discover that I too am smitten with dementia. Before God's wholeness, I am demented. Decades ago, Michael Griffiths penned a pithy prophetic book about the church called Cinderella with amnesia. That's what the church is, a beautiful bride in the making, but one with frequent memory lapses. 
How often do we ask the same old hackneyed questions and insist on treading tired, well-worn pathways of sin, always hearing, never learning, seemingly oblivious to the pain that we cause him. The incontinence of our sin must surely wrinkle his nostrils as once again we soil ourselves. Consider demented Israel. Over and over again, despite miraculous sea crossings and manna falling from heaven, hers was the repeated malady described in just two words, they forgot. Stunning moments just slipped their minds. Desperate that they remember, God gave them feasts and festivals, circumcision and ceremony. Still, they forgot. Nothing's changed. That's why Jesus' parting gifts to his friends, parting gift to his friends was a remembrance meal. So this morning, let's think clearly. Learn from our failures and by grace live beautifully. Let's spare a thought and a prayer for the humans who are carers, who unlike the Lord of amnesiac Israel are not God or gods. Do not think that they are strong just because they act as if they are. And let us tread carefully around our elders and respect and honor those who have walked on the earth longer than we. Let's pray and bless those who are smitten with this dementia and let them know with a touch, a smile, a word softly spoken and oft repeated because so quickly it slips their mind that they are loved, cared for, and that whatever the lying disease might shout, we whisper that they are not alone. Let's pray that the Spirit of God, the one called Comforter, will caress them with kindness. For the Spirit needs no words and can speak life where there is chaos and confusion, just as it was in the beginning when all was without form and void. And next time, next time we sip bread and wine, and for a while we remember clearly, let's be grateful for the great carer of us all. We cast our cares on him because he cares for us. But thank God, he remembers our sins no more, but never forgets us sinners. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you because you remember us when so often we forget. We forget what you've told us clearly and plainly as they did. We forget to live through your power and try and tough it out ourselves. We forget your call to die daily and in the moment of temptation, we are not firm. Some of us today, Lord, are disappointed with you and some of us are struggling with you clearly understanding what you're calling us to but insisting that we have a better way that we know best unlike Peter we'd like to take you aside and and tell you we know and we want to stop that we want you to manage us Lord and not us manage you. So as our heads are bowed, Spirit of God, 
would you continue to work? Let's just keep our heads bowed and I'm going to give a very simple invitation. Some of us need to respond in a moment or two because there's a specific situation we've been trying to argue with and manage God. And today we've realized and remembered and it's time to surrender. And there are others of us who are disappointed with him. Putting it bluntly as it was for Peter, he hasn't turned out to be the Messiah that we wanted him to be. There's nothing wrong with him, but our perception is disappointment. And we need to trust him. I don't say these things easily today. I'm calling some of us to trust him in the place of mystery and heartbreak. But if you find yourself disappointed and wanting to trust and resisting and struggling and trying to manage but now wanting to submit, wherever you are in this building or in the South Auditorium, I'd like to ask you just to slip up your hand and hold it there for a few seconds, please, and then put it down. Would you do that now? And you can put your hands down. Lord, thank you that you know our hearts. Thank you that you register this moment. We respond to your words Sunday after Sunday. But every response matters. We pray for those who are disappointed that they will discover hope and grace in trusting you. We pray for those who have struggled and resisted and tried to manage you. May they find peace in submission. We pray for any here, Lord, who do not know you. And as it was for Peter who declared, you are the Messiah, may it be that for them today, this is a moment to say, yes, Jesus, I believe I know who you are. I want to put my trust in you. And finally, Lord, we pause to pray for any who find themselves fighting this dread disease of dementia. And in praying for them, we pray also for those who care for them. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have in Christ. That when we feel abandoned, we are not abandoned. That when you said, Jesus, I will be with you always, that included those who don't always remember. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're able to break through the chaos and the confusion and speak words of hope and wholeness. So we give you thanks. Our hope is in you. <clears throat> in Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. Can I say before we, uh, before we give in just a moment or two at the end of... Lord, we pray that you will be glorified as we die to ourselves this week and we live in Christ, filled with your Spirit. Help us to follow you. Be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend. Pray for me because it's Labor Day weekend, shopping and barbecues, and uh, pray that there will not be a cremation at our house this afternoon. Have a great day. God bless you. Prayer team are here if we can pray with you.
We would love to do that. God bless you. Thank <laughs> you.